Grab a seat. Man, it's so good to worship together. So good to worship. We're gonna be uh, continuing this series called Upside Down. And Upside Down is this series that we're talking about, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Jesus lists these things. We talk about the poor in spirit. We talk about those who mourn. And uh, really, it's Jesus' way of telling us how you can be blessed and how you can see the kingdom of God. And they seem to be upside down ways from what the world might say we might feel blessed encountering these things. And so it's really a challenge. It can be confusing at times. It reminds me of when I was, I think I was in sixth grade. And I I think I've shared this story before, but my cousin was in town. We lived in this little town and my cousin came over and I remember this, we were hanging out with some kids in town, and this, these kids in town, there was kind of a group of them that were really into boxing and stuff. In fact, some of them went on to uh, do amateur boxing. I believe one of them went on to do pro uh, boxing in Madison Square Garden even. And so there was like this whole group of them. And it, we were in sixth grade, though. And my cousin, I remember my cousin, he's, he's standing right here. He's facing me. And this kid who was the toughest kid in my class uh, had his back towards me. And I remember this moment when... All of a sudden, he just starts to punch my cousin in the face. Like, I remember exactly how many punches it was, too. It was like one, a right, a left, and then a right. And I'm watching this happen. I can just remember. I can still see the look on his face as he's getting punched. And I don't know what happened, but some switch flipped in me. And I took this kid from the back, and I rammed him into a tree. And because I didn't know what happened. Like, all of a sudden, he gets up. He's as surprised as I am that it happened. But I kind of had this conflict on the inside because my parents told, like, had told us, like, don't get into trouble. And I felt like this obligation to not fight and stuff. And so I was really confused as to what I was supposed to do next. And so he came out and he, he wanted to start swinging. And so he started to punch me, but I didn't feel like I could, I could fight back. I felt like I, I wasn't supposed to fight back. And so I just stood there. And I remember exactly how many punches it was. It was seven. It, exactly. I remember every single one. Boom, boom. And I didn't know what to do. And so I just stood there and stared at it as he's punching me, which probably, oddly enough, was more intimidating than if I'd done anything else, you know? Finally, he just stopped, and I remember going back home and walking into the house. My mom was giving piano lessons to a little girl. They both look up shocked as blood is all over my face. And I remember being so confused in that moment. Like, am I supposed to be strong, or am I supposed to be weak? Am I supposed to be bold, or am I supposed to be timid? Am I supposed to to fight, or am I supposed to run? And you know, after that, we kind of had to talk with my parents, kind of figured out a little bit different strategy. But I remember just being in that moment, like, what am I supposed to do as a follower of Jesus in a moment like that? And this next scripture that we read, I think, is one of those moments where we, we kind of try to, want, we try to figure out, like, what am I supposed to do with this? And here it is, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, when we think of the word meek, A lot of us don't know what to do with that word. And what it conjures up is, I think a lot of times this word meek can sometimes conjure up this picture of Jesus. Like, I have a picture. It's not an actual picture. But I have a picture of Jesus, of like Jesus just walking around snuggling lambs all day. Like, that's what Jesus' job is. He snuggles lambs. That's what he does, you know. And we kind of have this picture of Jesus is meek. You just, and so then we think, are we supposed to snuggle lambs? Like, what are we supposed to do? And If this is your idea of Jesus, and in fact, let me just say, the world kind of wants a Jesus like this, by the way. A Jesus that really is just kind of not, just just is snuggling lambs. I I don't know how else to put it. You know, this kind of the world wants that. Uh, Not a dangerous Jesus by any stretch of the imagination, right? 
And so we don't know what to do with that. But I can tell you this, and why don't first, before we go into what meekness is, I want to start off by what meekness is not. Because I think it's important for us to identify what it's not before we go into what it is. And if you try to live a life like this, where you're trying to, trying to go this route, you will live a life that's very unchristlike, actually, to try to go this route. Because Jesus is our example. How do you guys know that Jesus is our example in everything, right? Like, he is the perfect representation of the Father. Uh, he did not sin. We'd look to him for our example in all things and also, that includes this word meekness. And so here's what we know about Jesus and this idea of meekness. We know that Jesus was not shy. Jesus was not timid. Jesus was not weak. And yet he demonstrated perfect meekness and humility along the way. So how does this happen? Let me just say, first of all, here, here's what meekness is not. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not Weakness. And let me just give you some examples of how, you know, some people would say, well, you know, surely Jesus was just nice to everybody, right? Like all the time. Well, Jesus offended, you know that Jesus offended people all the time, right? But, but Jesus offended people, and yet the Bible says that he's without sin. So every time Jesus offended somebody, he did not commit a sin. Let me just give you the resume, a list of some of the things and some of the people that Jesus offended, but yet was not in sin while doing it. First of all, he offended the Pharisees. These were the religious teachers of the law that day. It says in Matthew 23, 15, this is Jesus talking, okay? So get your snuggling lamb, Jesus, in mind and then throw that out for a second and then hear this. He says, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. How many of you guys like to be sitting in that sermon, right? I mean, like, and he's pointing his finger at you, right? So he offended the Pharisees. You go on and you read all of Matthew chapter 23, one chapter in the Bible. He's calling them all sorts of things. Uh, you know, hypocrites, vipers, all sorts of things. So he offended the Pharisees. He also offended the disciples, his own disciples, you know that there wasn't just 12 disciples, but eventually there'd be 70, there'd be a lot more. And one day he starts to preach a sermon. It was the sermon titled, Whoever Feeds on My Flesh and Drinks My Blood Sermon. It will receive eternal life. And the disciples like kind of had a reaction to that one. In John chapter 6, verse 60, it says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. <laughs> like that's their reaction. This is hard. Who can listen to this one? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said, does this offend you? And evidently it did. We know that it did because a few verses later, watch what happens. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It doesn't say they skipped church the next week. It says they no longer walked with him. These people were so offended at what Jesus said that they stopped following him altogether. So he offended the Pharisees. He offended the disciples. You know who else he offended? He offended his own family and his hometown. Watch this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. It says, these people, you know, Jesus comes into town. They're saying, isn't this a carpenter's son? Is this not, I mean, isn't his mother Mary who lives over on 3rd Street? Like, and we, his brothers we see at the convenience store all the time. Like this is, we know these guys, his sisters and all this stuff. Where then does this man get all these things? And they what? They took offense at him. But Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and his own household. So he offended the Pharisees, the disciples, his family, his own hometown, but he also offended his close friends. You guys remember Lazarus was 
was sick and he was almost dead and they send word to Jesus and they're begging Jesus to come, to come and heal him before he dies. And Jesus waits. Finally, he strolls in after Lazarus died and here's what one of his close friends said in John chapter 11, verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So he fends all of these people And yet Jesus demonstrated perfect meekness and humility in the whole process. We'll sort that out here in just a minute. But but let me just go a little bit further. I should offend you from time to time. My preaching should offend you from time to time. The word of God will offend you from time to time. And if it doesn't offend you from time to time, one, you may not be listening and paying attention. (laughs) Or two, it's just a bunch of perfect people here. Like nobody needs to change anything, right? Or maybe some of us fall into this other category where we just, you know, we just think, okay, I'm perfect. I don't have anything to, do, to, to listen to. Or maybe we've thought we don't even need to change. Listen, there, there are going to be times, and there are times when the word of God pushes back on me. And it's not because the word of God is wrong, it's because my thought process is wrong. My position that I've taken is wrong. My answers, that my attitude has been wrong. And if you come in here and think that I'm always, I'm, I'm always going to agree with everything that's been said, either I'm not preaching the truth or you're not listening. <laughs> because there are times in our life, otherwise we're saying that there's nothing we have to change in our life. That's the ultimate place of pride when we get to, when we say there's nothing I have to do to change, that there's nothing in the word of God that's ever going to be offensive to me. Listen, there are going to be times when the word of God is at odds with where you're at in your life. And it's calling you, the Holy Spirit's calling you to change. Let me go even further. Your life ought to be offensive at times. And I don't just mean just walking around and trying to offend people. What I'm saying is, if you want to follow Jesus and live a life that's not offensive, you can't. It's impossible. You have to choose one or the other. Because there are going to be many times when you have to follow Jesus and it becomes offensive to the world. It becomes offensive to the way that the world wants you to live. And yet you have to follow it faithfully. And so Jesus offended people. I should offend you. The word of God offends people. If your life doesn't offend, maybe you need to rethink and see if you're following faithfully. However, we cannot just use this as a license to just be however we want, do whatever we want, say whatever we want, have an attitude however we want, because Jesus did all of those things without sin. So what does it look like to do all these things, to live a strong life without sin? sin, to be a strong person without sin. We looked at what meekness is not. Let's start to dive into what meekness is. And to do that, I shot a video yesterday to help you see this through an illustration. So take a look. It was 1993 and I found myself with my brothers and we were in Tampico, Mexico. We were on this missions trip. We were taking groups down and stuff. But in the meantime, we were on this ranch of this very wealthy person who I believe owned like a cable station or something in Mexico. I can't remember the whole story, but it was this big, huge ranch. And we had the opportunity to jump on these horses and no saddle, no bit, nothing. We just jumped on there and we were riding these horses. I mean, we're rounding up cattle. We're riding up through these hills. I mean, it was like for a 
15-year-old boy, it was like a dream come true. It sounds like really fantastic, right? It was awesome, but it was like out of control. It was crazy. And every time I look out at my neighbor's horses, my neighbor has horses back there. I tried everything I could to get them over here, but they got some fresh food and they like the food better than me. But my neighbor has these horses and I, all the time I look out here and I look at how powerful these animals are. I mean, they're, they're, if I were to jump over there and to jump on that horse, I mean, it may not go well for me, right? But the amazing thing about horses, we all know that you can take a horse, you can train them, uh, you can train it, put a bit in their mouth, you can put a saddle on them, you can train them to plow a field, you can train them to take a to go on a trail ride, you can train them to pull carriages on the plaza. You can take all this power and train it. And that's one of my favorite definitions of meekness. It's power under control. Meekness is power under control. And James uses this example in James chapter 3 about our tongue. Verse 3 says, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are large and driven around by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue. It's a small member, yet boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. What he's talking about is taking all this power and bringing it under control. And so many of us, man, we love to speak the truth. I mean, the Bible tells us to speak the truth. But the Bible tells us to speak the truth, which is power in love. Love brings the meekness. It brings that power into loving control. And I know some of us are like, man, I'm just a powerful you know, individual. I got a strong personality. I got a strong will. That's that's just the way that I am. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm just a powerful, strong-willed person. And listen, I get it. That's, that's who I am. In fact, my mom, she tells this story of when I was like one or two years old, and she's like trying to cast demons out of me or something because I was so strong-willed. So beat that. I mean, I, I get it. I'm a strong-willed person. But sometimes we just say, well, I'm just a strong person, and that's just the way that I am. But it's the meekness that demonstrates the work of the Spirit in our life. Because one of the fruits of the Spirit is not just love, joy, and peace. We think of those things, but it's also self-control. And so one of the ways that I know, and, and listen, I struggle with this as much as anybody does, but one of the ways that, I, ways that I know that this is happening in my life is when the fruit of the Spirit brings that opportunity for me to take the power and to bring it under the control of the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the things we have to understand. So meekness is power under control. How many of you guys are like that? Like you got a, you're like a strong personality. Like that's, that's where I'm at. And the, I, the Holy Spirit has to be at work in our lives. We can't use those things as an excuse to be able to act however we want. We have, that's where meekness comes in and where the demonstration of the Spirit in our life and the fruit of the Spirit comes into our life. So let me just bring you on to this next one, this next idea, because meekness is not just power under control, but we can take it further than that. Meekness is when we place our confidence in God's strength, not our own strength. How many of you guys would just for just a moment just admit that maybe you've been running a little bit too long and too hard in your own strength, trying to deal with 2020, the leftovers in 2021 in your own strength, Right? See, when you enter into this meekness, it's, it's taking this idea that God, and I have more confidence in God's strength and not in my own strength. And this idea of meekness is really about humility. 
And here's what humility is. Humility isn't like making yourself so small that you're insignificant and you're worthless and all that type of stuff. That's what people think of when they think of humility. No, humility is being confident in God and not confident in self. It's putting your confidence in God over confidence in yourself. Ephesians chapter six, verse 10 says, finally, be strong in what? The Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of what? His might, in the strength of his might. And a lot of times we think, okay, well, you know, God, you know, you hear that scripture of God demonstrates like when I'm weak, then God's strong. And so we think, man, I'm just gonna be weak. I've gotta be weak for God to be. And when people look at me, they'll see how weak I am and they'll just thank God for that. You know, that's not what that scripture means. See, when you are weak and God brings his strength in, when people see you, they won't see weakness. They'll see God's strength in you. They're not, when you're walking around in God's strength, people don't think of you as weak. They think of you as stronger than you could have been on your own because you're walking in God's strength. God will show up and display his strength in you. Think about Gideon. Think about the crazy things. You can read about that. I think it's in Judges 6, somewhere around in there. Uh, You can read about Gideon and, and all the crazy ways that God took his weaknesses and did fantastical things with his weaknesses, but it made Gideon and what God was doing in him look stronger, and God got the glory because of it. So here's what I'm trying to say, and some of you guys need to get this, that God wants to surprise you with his strength. He wants to display Get this, his strength in you. He doesn't want to put your strength, your way, your will, your attitude, your whatever on display. He wants to put his strength on display. And when his strength is on display, he gets glory. And he wants to do it in ways you never thought of. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly. How many of you guys know that God could do far more abundantly than you can do on your own, right? So when we enter into meekness, again, it's not weakness. We're entering into God's strength. When we enter into meekness, we we're, we're actually are capable of more than, rather than less. When we enter into the meekness that comes with God and we enter into his strength, we have access to more power rather than less power when we're walking in meekness. It says he wants to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power, whose power, not my power, but according to him at work within me, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. But it takes faith. How many of you guys know it takes faith to walk in God's strength and not your own strength? Let me say it this way, just to kind of help us. It takes faith to walk with God's attitude and not your own. It takes faith to trust God can handle things in his strength rather than needing yours. One of the ways that I learned this was through, a, through Sabbaths. You know, the Sabbath is a day that we're supposed to set aside on a regular basis, a weekly basis, where we step aside and we enjoy the things of God. We rest in God. We do those things, step aside of our normal routine and come aside to spend time uh, refueling in God. And and here's what the Sabbath does. The Sabbath is basically saying this to God. It's saying, God, I trust you to be able to run the world one day a week without me. (laughs) That's what it takes to have faith. That's That's what it takes to trust in God's strength. And I learned this again when I took a sabbatical in 2018. I was gone for six weeks over the summer. And I came back and I looked at all the numbers, looked at all the reports, heard all the stories and realized that the church grew while I was gone. That'll do something for your ego, right? Like, like I'm supposed to be leading it and everything and, and things go better when I'm gone rather than when I'm here. 
You know what that taught me? It taught me that it's God who builds the church. It's not Sean who builds the church. You know, it's God who's building your life. You are not in charge of building your life. You're in charge of the surrender and to step into his strength. So meekness, it gives you access to more power, not less, when you do it God's way. And it takes faith to walk through that unknown season to say, God, I'm going to give this to you during this time. Now, today is that Sanctity of, of Life Sunday with, you know, we did that highlight for the Liberty Women's Clinic. I think it's appropriate that we highlight them again right now because I was thinking about them and the work that they do and how much faith it takes to walk through a process. And especially the people coming to the clinic who have to just simply say, God, ultimately they're, they're surrendering and saying, I, I can't do this on my own. I'm going to have to trust that, that there's another strength coming from this. So let's take one more look. client walks in, I see a woman who's scared. I usually see a person who thinks she isn't worth anything. I hear fear. I see desperation. I see each one made in God's image. I see a mix of vulnerability and bravery. I see myself 34 years ago. When I see a client, Sometimes I see somebody the same age as my daughter. When I think of her baby, I think about God's goodness and just the miracle of life. I think a precious little one, an amazing miracle. I think about my own kids. A creation of God's that's perfect and God created that baby for a reason, for a purpose. Something that's sacred. That little one has been knit together and created for a special purpose. I see life. When the client chooses life, I can't even describe that. I feel my heart smiling. It's just this joy. I feel excited, like that is why we are here. I feel blessed. I feel like we've gave them all the support they need. And this celebration. The Lord's hand in that situation. When that client chooses life, I feel hope. them a big hand for the work that they do. We have several people in our church. Yeah, several people in our church, you might have recognized some of the faces, but it takes faith to walk that out. Now, this last thing I'm going to uh, hit on before we wrap up is really kind of personal for me because it's one that I may struggle with, I don't know, maybe the most. And you'll see why here in just a little bit. But meekness gives up its right for revenge. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 and 19 says, do all that you can to live with peace, to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God for the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. You know what my fleshly bent is? My old, if I step back into my old life or my old sin nature, you could call it. Whenever there's aggression towards me, I want to meet that with aggression. Or if I'm really honest, let me just be real honest with you guys. What I really want to do is whenever there's aggression towards me, I want to meet it with more aggression. And I've, I've struggled with that all my life. I've struggled with that all my life. 
But when I want to walk in meekness, I have to realize that I have to walk by faith, again, in God's strength, again, power under control, again, the fruit of the Spirit in my life, beginning to walk that out. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that, you guys have probably heard this before, but that no root of bitterness spring up surprisingly and try to take, that springs up and causes trouble surprisingly and by it you may become defiled. Now, here's the thing. God showed this to me a long time ago because we think about the root of bitterness and a lot of times when we think about bitterness or offense or anything like that, we think about these big things in our heart. Here's what God spoke to me a long time ago. He said this, I'm just gonna read it. Don't judge these things, that means the root of bitterness inside of us. Don't judge these things by their size but by what they're trying to accomplish in us. Because you can have a root of bitterness over something silly, over something small, yet it has a big agenda trying to accomplish a big agenda in your life. You can have a small root of bitterness try to cut off a relationship in your life, and it may be a small thing you allow cut off a relationship, but you don't know God's agenda behind that relationship, but yet that small thing had a big agenda in your life. And just like the kingdom of God, it says it's like a mustard seed, that it's very small, but it can spring up and cause big things. You realize a root of bitterness, it can be a very small thing that springs up and causes a big thing in your life. And our response to an offense, whether we have aggression towards us or however you want to describe it, our response, what we do next determines our future. It really does determine the course of our life, what what we do next with all of that. So are you going to live with it or are you going to deal with it God's way? See, the way of meekness has a different way to deal with it than the way of the flesh. Because our response to an offense determines our future. I I heard this story, it's not a true story, but you can pretend like it's a true story. It's about uh, a brother and sister, Johnny and Sally. And they went over the summer to go spend a few weeks with their grandparents. And Johnny was outside one day and he had this slingshot and he was trying to target practice with the slingshot. But Johnny was horrible with the slingshot. They're just going everywhere. And grandma had this pet duck that would walk around and she loved this pet duck and Johnny's out there with his slingshot. Can anybody see what's coming? He accidentally hits the duck in the head. Boom, duck drops dead. Johnny's got to figure out what to do. So Johnny takes the duck and he's trying to hide it. He's trying to think, well, maybe I can convince him that the duck ran away or whatever. He's getting ready to hide it or to bury it. And as he's doing it, he looks up and, his, looks up and he sees his sister Sally who saw the whole thing. Meanwhile, uh, the grandma calls them in and says, uh, Sally, um, it's time for supper. You got to help me fix supper. And she looks over at Johnny and says, I think Johnny wants to help you fix supper today. And then she says, remember the duck. And so Johnny's like, yeah, I, I want to help fix supper today. And after they get done with supper and grandpa was wanting to take them out fishing and grandma said, wait, 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 wait. You know, Johnny, help me fix supper. Sally, I need you to help me do the dishes instead of go fishing. And Sally says, I think, John, I think Johnny wants to do the dishes. Right, Johnny? And remember the duck. And Johnny's like, yeah, I guess I want. And so Sally went fishing and Johnny stayed back and did the dishes. This went on for a couple weeks as they were throughout the summer. And every time Sally would say, remember the duck, remember the duck. And then one day Johnny just couldn't take it anymore. He just had enough and he ran in in tears and he confessed the whole thing to grandma. And he just said, I I had the slingshot and I shot the duck and the duck died and I buried the duck. And grandma says, I know. I watched the whole thing out my window. She said, 
I just wanted to see how long you would allow Sally to make a slave out of you. Now, here's the point when it comes to offense in our heart. Here's the question. How long will we allow Satan to make a slave out of us over our offense? Because so many of us are, have become a slave to our offense. It's affecting our relationship. It's affecting our day-to-day. -day. It's affecting our thought life. It's affecting all of these things. It literally is determining the course of our future. Thankfully, there's another way to respond, the way of meekness, the way Jesus taught. And to do that, let's look at this story in Luke chapter 7, verse 41. It says, then Jesus told him this story. He says, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? And Simon answered and said, I suppose for the one whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. He was teaching us this lesson that if you've been forgiven much, you will love much. If you've been forgiven much, you will forgive much. Let me ask you a question. How many of you guys have been forgiven much? The degree to which you are willing to forgive is the degree to which you understand that revelation of how much you've been forgiven. If you're unwilling to forgive much, you don't have a revelation of how much you've been forgiven. If you're unwilling to forgive much, you really don't believe that you've been forgiven much. That's what Jesus is implying here. That's the lesson that he's teaching. You can easily do a test on where you're at with this by just simply being willing to, to, to evaluate your heart honestly before God, which is what I encourage everybody to do, evaluate honestly before God. Where am I at? It's gonna do no good to hide the duck. It's not gonna do us any good. It's just gonna keep us a slave longer. So don't focus on how much you've been wronged. Focus on how much you've been forgiven. So the, the first part of that verse that we've dealt with, and, and I'm almost done, but the first part says, blessed are the meek, but the last part says, for they shall inherit the earth. Some people translate that as simply meaning the land or their land or the promised land or their promised land. The implication is this, once we understand how to walk in meekness, that it's power under control, that we're walking in God's strength and not our own strength, that we're giving up our right for revenge and we're loving and forgiving much. When we, when we start living a life like that, you naturally begin to inherit the plan that God has for your life. You begin to almost stumble into it, as it were. You begin to inherit the land. Inheriting is not fighting for something, it's receiving something. But I have seen over the years as a pastor so many times people who had gifting, calling, purpose, and it seemed like the trajectory they were on was to naturally inherit the promised land or their land or their purposes, and yet they sabotaged themselves by unforgiveness. They sabotaged themselves by doing it their own way. They sabotaged themselves by walking in their own strength. And it's a sad story. It happens all the time. But there's a way that we can walk, the way of meekness that God promises to us. And I hope that, I hope there's been, I hope there's been a pushback in your heart that the Holy Spirit's working on during this message. Because that's a good thing. That means the conviction of the Holy Spirit is at play. And as we wrap up, I'm going to have the worship team come back. But what I'm going to say next is probably one of the most hopeful and challenging things of the whole message. And here's, here's what it is. Somebody once said this. The Beatitudes... Turn us into the friends we want to have. Let me say that again. The Beatitudes turn us into the friends we want to have. Don't you want to have friends 
who are poor in spirit in the sense that they understand that without Jesus, I got nothing going on. Don't you wanna have friends who, like we talked about last week, who mourn over their sin and repent when they're wrong? Don't you want friends like that? Don't you want friends who are walking in meekness that even if they're a powerful person, they have it under control because the work of the Spirit is in their life. They're willing to step into God's strength and not their own strength. And even when you mess up and bring aggression towards them, they diffuse it by forgiving you. Don't you want friends like that? See, the Beatitudes turn us into the friends we want to have. So here's the big question I'm gonna let sit with you and I'm, I'm glad you're sitting down because this is a big one right here, okay? If that's true, if the Beatitudes turn us into the friends we want to have, here's the question. If you were not you, would you want to be around yourself? If you were not you, would you want to be loved the way you love others? If you were not you, would you want to hang around the attitude you give off to others? If you were not you, would you want to forgive others the way you forgive others? You want to be forgiven the way you forgive others. If you were not you, would you want to be around yourself? And the, the good news is this. Two scriptures at the last that you can meditate on and you can literally step into these scriptures, okay? Here's the solution. By the way, Jesus is the solution. Here it is. Colossians chapter three, verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ, here's what you do, saying, seek those things that are above don't think about all these other things. Seek those things that are above where Christ is, seated on the throne. At the right hand of God, set your mind on the things that are above, on spirit things, not flesh things. I don't know how much I've been wrong, but how much I've been forgiven, that, that type of thought. Set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on this earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, whenever you come into to salvation, you become a new creation so that you can step into the life of God, that if you choose to step into this, your life can be swallowed up and hidden in God so that when people look at you, they see the Beatitudes in you. They see the fruit of those things in you so that when they look at you, ultimately they see Jesus in you. That's what it means, that you've stepped into the life of God. You've stepped into the kind of life God wants you to live. You've stepped into the kind of attitudes God wants you to have, the kind of posture God wants you to, to have, the kind of thought life. And the way we do this is when we recognize one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible, it's Galatians chapter two, verse 20. It says, for I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me walk through this again. For I, Sean, I, I've been crucified with Christ. You know, the Bible talks about that in Romans chapter six when we talk about baptism and being buried with Christ and raised to new life. I've been crucified with Christ. So that means I have a new life. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, in the life of God, in the ways of God. Because he loved me and he gave himself for me and he gave me a way to do that because it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And so at the end of each message, I like to have a moment where we just reflect and we just listen to the voice of God, even if it's just for 10 seconds, if we can do that. And this is like a gut check to see if we really meant the song we sang earlier. My heart is an open space for you to come and have your way. Do, do we really mean that? 
Do we really mean that? I said this in first service, but you guys can go ahead and stand up with me as we prepare our hearts to worship. But I, I said this in the first service and a lot of people are praying for revival right now. You guys may be doing that yourself. You're praying for revival. Revival starts with repentance. Revival starts with repentance. And a lot of people are praying, praying that scripture. You guys know that scripture probably, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will heal their land. First of all, that scripture's taken out of context. I'm not gonna preach that sermon right now. However, if you are going to pray that scripture, I want you to pay attention to who needs to repent. It's not the world that needs to repent. It's not the nation that needs to repent. It's not the unbelievers that need to repent. It's not the other people in the church that need to repent. Right? My people will humble themselves. Quit praying for the nation to humble themselves. You humble yourself. Me, I've gotta humble myself. I struggle with this as anybody, just as much as anybody else. I've taken back words, I've deleted posts, I've done all that stuff, right? If my people, this is where we, we mean the words we sing. So God, we come before you right now and we do wanna see revival. But we're not praying, it's gotta start inside of me, do a work inside of me. I'm not worried about a nation repenting, I'm worried about me repenting. God, do a work inside of each and every one of us here so that we can step into the life of God and that our life can be hidden in you. And then when people see us, they see these attitudes, these beatitudes of Christ in us, that the fruit of the Spirit is on display, that the strength of God is what people see. Lord, we just open up our heart and we just say our heart is an open space. Come and have, our way, have your way in our heart today. It's all yours. We're open. We're open.